Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're well wherever you may be. Today, in a special packed episode from MIPCOM 2022 in Cannes, we hear from writer, actor and director Hugo Blick and Drama Republic's Greg Brenman about their latest collaboration, The English. From Federation Studios' Pascal Breton, New and Connect's Rodolphe Bouet and Asatcha Media Group's Marina Williams about the growing influence of French companies on the international TV business. And from the C21 and C Vantiono teams about the biggest stories and themes shaping this year's market. The English is a new six-part drama for the BBC and Amazon Prime Video from writer and director Hugo Blick and Media One and Leonine Studios-owned UK production company Drama Republic, co-founded by Greg Brenman. An epic western starring Emily Blunt and Chask Spencer, the series is being sold around the world by All3 Media International and had its premiere here in Cannes at MIPCOM this week. The English is Blick and Brenman's third collaboration following tremendous success with The Honourable Woman and Black Earth Rising and they spoke to me about the new series and their relationship. Tell us about the English, uh, a Western. Why a Western? Why now? And, and you know, what was the genesis of, uh, of the story for you? Well, it was uh, the, the, the great Jimmy Stewart who, who said that uh, the Western is the purest form of, of cinematic art. And I, I, I think he meant, in fact, I, I know what he meant. He means that if you put a man on the landscape and then the bigger the landscape, the greater the pressure upon that man, and then pressure is usually revenge, then you have a very elemental visual palette. And I, I, I think it's a, the ambition of most, of many filmmakers to engage with that genre. But the swap out here is that instead of having the great Jimmy Stewart as, uh, as our uh, revenge motif uh, practitioner. We have a woman, first off, and played by Emily Blunt. And then, which is pretty rare to have a woman in the genre. It's uh, normally women in this venerable genre have been kind of harlots or card sharks, uh, people of suspicion, in fact. Um, so to have a woman with agency of revenge uh, is unusual. But perhaps unique is the second part of that, of our story, which is that we have, above the title as it were, a Native American playing a Native American in a lead role within the genre. The genre doesn't have a great history of Native representation. There are wonderful examples of storytelling. And if you look at something as, you know, as venerable as, as, as John Ford's The Searchers, which many people hold up as the greatest of its, uh, of its type. Well, Chief Scar is played by, not only played by a German uh, called Henry Brandon, but he's blue-eyed. And if you go through, in fact, Chaske Spencer, who plays Eli in our project, um, and I, between takes, just to have a little bit of a running joke as, as we could find out who else had played Native American within the genre who were effectively Western. And that would include people like Rock Hudson in Winchester 73, um, Elvis Presley in Stay Away Joe, uh, Jeff, Ch- uh, Jeff Chandler, uh, yeah, the list was endless. So the opportunity to evoke a native experience within the Western genre was one of the main purposes of making this picture. And um, tell us about the genesis of the story in your own mind and, and how it, I suppose, draws a thread through your other work as well. Well, the genesis um, 
from my, from my experience of life was when I was a young man, I was sent out to Montana. Uh, and so I experienced kind of the last vestiges of what you might think is the West, the old West. And uh, what I saw was both the best of that and some of the worst aspects of that. And as a consequence, I knew it was a story. I love Westerns. I wanted to engage in Western. And I knew I wanted to engage in it in a particular way, in the ways I've just described. But technically, it's a very demanding aspect to do this. You take people out into the middle of nowhere, you have a circus of literal horses and all the things that come with it logistically. So to engage in that uh, epic level of storytelling, I'm glad that I approached this at the later part, hopefully, of my career rather than the first part of it. And as I say, what are the sort of the common themes, I suppose, that you address here and, and, and you know, that, that, that fans of your work will kind of recognize from previous series? I, I think it's interesting. I think if, if, if fans such as there be, I think that one of the things that they might enjoy about my work is that it, they're never very similar, the one to the other. I've uh, explored in The Honorable Woman the relationships between Israel and Palestine, in Black Earth Rising, uh, the post-genocide Rwanda, and here I am in uh, a Western, previously a neo-noir in, in The Shadow Line. So they're very, kind of very, very different. But I guess there's a uniting theme, which is identity, the loss of identity, and the reclamation of identity. And in this specific story, the English, I think that is very personified in these two lead characters. Their loss of identity and their reclamation of it. So this feels very essential. And what is it about the, the limited series which appeals to you? Or is this something that you feel could return? Is that something that you avoid as, a, as an auteur? Yeah, I, I love the, I, I think the two things that work for is it gives a very a limited seri series gives a very finite destination the audience know that they're not going to be sort of cheated from an exit and as my colleague greg brenham who's executive producer on the picture says it's it's if you leave the door open at the end of a story in order for it to continue in unknown ways when you're making it because you're not certain you're letting an awful lot of air out of that doorway and I love to keep it shut. And shutting it means that we really hit a final note. And I hope that that gives great satisfaction to the audience. The contract is clear. It's just this tale. How do you mm -hmm. embrace those kind of, the, the, some of the tropes, I guess, which, which make Western so popular, but also avoid some of the, the cliches as well in, in doing this? Well, the, the Western has, uh, the, the cowboy part of the Western, funny enough, is, is, is very clear, it's revenge. The, the ones that we engage in, they're, they're about a guy's had something wrong done to him and he's going to go out and find a bad guy and sort it out. That revenge motif. This is very much present within our story. But what's unusual, or I guess is pretty unusual, is that it has this other element. And it's kind of the epic element, the thing that you would normally see in Dr. Zhivago or some such. And that's the love story. There's an intimacy between our two lead characters who support each other in their variant vulnerabilities and strengths to take this survival journey with each other and fall in love or express ideas of what love is. And that makes this story epic and intimate. And it just shifts it so it isn't just about the linear shooting them up, which could become a little cliche, it could become whatever it is and expected. It has this unusual heartbeat of being about two 
vulnerable individuals who have to survive. And in, in surviving, they hopefully engage an audience to wish that they will. And that's what's sort of unusual about it. And I hope that makes a sort of unique presentation for an audience. In referencing some of the, uh, the, the earlier Westerns that have, have made the genre so great, you, you never mentioned Sergio Leone. You know, the thing that was so remarkable about shooting this, the picture in Spain was that when you arrived, this fantastic crew, many of them had relations, uncles, aunts, mothers, fathers, who worked with Sergio Leone, Sergio Cabucci, and many other practitioners of the spaghetti Western. And it made for a fantastically experienced, just in their DNA, crew who knew from their historical relationship with the genre what this technically required. And, and although there are elements that I, you know, I like about Sergio's storytelling and others that I'm not so keen on, or both of the Sergio's, I love, absolutely love, the kind of flair, the way in which they create that kind of swish to their narrative storytelling. Some of the post-production, because often they film the whole thing without sound. Leone, uh, famously, Fistful of Dollars, completely without sound and then post-recorded. Post and that can make it quite strange as a watch, but uh, this flair for both violence and epic emotion is something that is hugely part of our inheritance. And the flair also comes from the music, obviously, with Sergei Leone and, and Ennio Morricone. And I couldn't help but notice there was the odd kind of bell tolling, which, you know, it, it's hard to avoid. It's, <laughs> That's it's, kind it's of a so reference intriguing. point. The, the, music, the score is, is, the, it's, is only just beneath the character, because a score is the articulation of the character's view, even when they're not saying it. That's the joy of great score. It's like the, the bone structure to a story. And uh, Federico Husserl, who is our composer, had to do two things. He had to look backwards towards the inheritance of the genre. Without that inheritance reflection, I think you would feel as a viewer, oh, it's something kind of off. You know, it's like not having a six-shooter in the, in the picture if you don't have that tolling bell. And then he had to do a different thing. He had to make it his own. And I'm, I'm certain as I can be that he's done a wonderful job of that. He speaks to the past, he speaks to Ennio Morricone, he speaks to John Barry, and he speaks to Eastwood's work as well, that, that, that right-hand piano tune, that simple piano tune. It's beautifully evoked, but he also carries it forward in his own articulation. And I, I feel that by the end of the project, you'll come away with a sense of that score that will echo in you, and it will be just about, hopefully, the English. And, um you were writing this, uh, I mean, you, you said that the project had been sort of gestating in your mind for a while, but uh, I presume you were doing the majority of the writing in the past few years, in, in uh, perhaps in a lockdown situation somewhere. Um, you know, how was that period for you as a, as a writer? Did it change life much at all? It, 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 it didn't actually change. The, 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 funnily enough, the, the, the rhythm of my writing schedule uh, you know, matched, unfortunately, the lockdown, or fortunately for me, given that I was writing. But uh, what it offered me by being so locked, you know, all of us being in this, is this opportunity to escape. And at the time, I was doing it on my own with a script. But now, the audience have this opportunity as the winter months draw back in, and we still have that echo of lockdown to enter into this epic landscape with fabulous sunsets and vistas and epic storytelling about 
survival and the intimacy of emotional needs in an escapist environment that allows us to breathe, to get away from what's been a pretty horrendous few years. Um, and I think that's why the BBC, particularly when they engage, so well, it would be so wonderful to offer an audience in these darkening nights in winter this great opportunity for escapism because we've been so locked in and airless and here it is breathe your way through that dust into a hell of a story but in your previous works as you say you, you embrace some some very uh, heavy yeah. and uh, you know uncomfortable parts of of, of, of history and, 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 and geopolitics and it's impossible to ignore what's going on in, in the world today we've, we've come through this this COVID period obviously there, there are events taking place elsewhere which are you know having, having a dramatic effect on everybody's lives the, the TV business as well so I mean do, do, do you think that the sort of the situation in in Europe is something that might feed into your work sort of going forwards as well and what are you thinking about in terms of your next project and the themes that you'll be looking to embrace? Well, I never know quite when I'm... What, I always circle a couple of uh, uh, projects in my mind and it's not yet the time to land them. So I, 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 I won't know entirely what I want to do next until probably the new year when this project is completely delivered. Um, but I am certain that the reflection of now and what's happening in these tumultuous times that we live through right now will, if not by uh, actuality, uh, be reflected, they will be thematically engaged with. Because you can't not, you know, you live for now. The story that we're telling in the English reflects upon a venerable genre and uses a classical historical knowledge of the technical side of it, but really hopes to speak to the issues that are immediate. Why else does an audience want to engage and come with you? They don't want a history lesson that's just about the technical aspects of the genre. They want to feel that this speaks to them now. And so as a writer, you're always trying to feel the, the tremor on the water, on the surface of the water, and reflect that no matter what genre you're engaging with. So this is your third project together with Greg Brenman and uh, Drama Republic. And how did that relationship come about originally? Well, I mean, along with lots of other people, we were huge fans of Hugo Blick's work and I think stalked him for many years until luck would have it that there was an opportunity for us to be given the script of The Honourable Woman and we were jumped at it and super keen to work with him and have loved it ever since. You know, the, the brilliant thing for any producer is to be excited and challenged by the work that lies before them and I love the and maybe it's partly because I've been around for quite a long time I love the prospect of not knowing how to achieve something I like that scare factor of thinking blimey this is a huge challenge and I've absolutely no idea how we're going to achieve it and he doesn't fail to deliver on that promise. So um, from your point of view, the English and, and you know, when that came to you and, and you sort of ran that past, I guess, the other work that you'd done with Hugo, you know, what was your first thoughts and, and uh, you know, how did you kind of visualise that together with him? Well, when I read the first episode of the English, I was just struck by how extraordinary it was and what a wonderful character Cornelia is and what an extraordinary personality and character Eli is. And so I was absolutely compelled and bowled over 
and desperate to find out more. So obviously we needed to make sure that the series got made. Um, but as ever, as I was saying, it, it presented us with a sort of interesting challenge. Where would we, would we make it? How could we get it financed? And I think the thing that we all agreed very early on was that unlike the other two shows, we would probably need to cast it quite early because the demand financially, budget-wise, was going to be fairly big. So we needed someone to help us find a home that could support the vision. And so Emily came on very, very early. Hugo sent her a script and within... You know, 18 hours, we were told yesterday, she responded. And I remember Roger Chartres, her UK agent, saying to me, Emily rang me last night. She loves this script. She says she's waited all her life for this part. And within two weeks, me, Hugo and Emily were racing around Los Angeles, meeting potential buyers. And actually, Amazon were our first port of call. And they, as they say, bought it in the room. So she's been fantastically important both creatively and as an exec producer helping actually on the heavy lifting in terms of bringing finance to the project and because covid elongated and stretched out pre-production to the point of sort of torture she managed to keep amazon on board all the way you know because there were moments when you know everything was slipping and sliding and uh it got pretty hairy but um she was really really important and she's an exec producer on the on the whole series as well, isn't she? Yeah, and then she's and you know sometimes I I concern myself when that that question is arises because people might feel oh it's a vanity thing you you're you're offering a film star a exec producer and it kind of just just because they do what in this case with Emily she was sent the first pilot script and said just as Greg described. But then the rest of the, the scripts were developed for, with her in mind for her character, intimately involved in her relationship to the script story and not beyond just her character. And then in the edit, she was incredibly closely involved in the way in which we constructed the edit. Uh, you know, almost as far as sort of felt like Lennon and McCartney. And I realize now I'm McCartney because I kind of like the, the I, I like the poetry. I like the sort of, oh, it's so nice. And she, yeah, get on with the chase. Get on with the chase. So between the two of us, we managed to find a great balance. And I thought it was really effective and way beyond what others might consider as just a vanity. She knew what she was doing as an exec producer and she participated full-bloodedly within that. You talked about the finance and putting the deal together and, and uh, Amazon, as you say, sort of leaping at it in, in, in the room there. But uh, a lot of discussion, obviously, in the business over the last sort of five years, longer perhaps, about streamers taking global rights uh, to, to shows. That's not the case with this one. All three medias distributing it internationally. So why did that feel like the right structure for this? Well, Hugo has a history. We have a history of working very closely with the BBC. BBC were a very, very important foundation for all three shows. And um, by that I mean all three of Hugo's shows, not all three media shows. And um, so it made sense to have a partner very early on and to know that we were going to have their support. And at that moment, to be honest with you, it's quite... It's quite nice to be able to broker a deal with Amazon and give them all the rights they need, but which doesn't mean taking the whole world. And it's very nice also, I think, to know that in your home country, the UK, it's going to be shown on a terrestrial broadcaster. And so really, in some ways, you get the best of everything, which is you get 
a very sort of local experience in terms of it's going to be shown on the broadcast that we all know and love. And around the world, through Amazon, it's going to hit some key territories with massive impact. And then through all three media to know that it's going to sell to maybe another 90 countries already, something like that. And so it feels that the reach of the project is really comprehensive. That makes it feels also like a, a cottage industry in that you create this one bespoke piece and then you participate in its sales to the markets that wish to buy your product. And, and that makes it a very satisfying experience because you're, you're, you get a lot of, you get the energy of individual purchases from all three's activities, meeting people who buy, and, and which is a very different experience than if you go to a single platform like Netflix, and it, it's just done in one go. So you, you don't get that longer tail of seeing other people experience your product. And it's very satisfying to have that experience. And so we did it with the Honorable Woman. Uh, it was a very satisfying experience. And then with Black Earth Rising, I think we majoritively sold it to Netflix. And you didn't really get much of that feeling. And then I always, if we can, on the English, let's do it this way with all three media because of that thing I've just described. And it just makes me feel, as a creative, that I'm getting, I've made something for people and people come into the shop and they buy it. And, or they don't, whatever. But it's just got a much more direct relationship. And weirdly, I really enjoy that. And from your point of view as well, for, for Drama Republic, um, it's, it's your 10-year anniversary, I think, this year, isn't it? Since, since setting it up, 2012, I believe. 2013, so it's coming up. It's been an incredible journey for you as a company. So three series with, with Hugo Blick, but um, you're also here with some pre-sales of another show, I believe. So the, 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 the Franny Langton project there. And um, you, you've just had incredible growth over these, these, these sort of past 10 years. So the, along with the drama business booming, you're, you're booming too, it seems. Uh, well, thanks for the reminder. Yes, it will be uh, February 2023 will be our 10 year anniversary. And to be honest, we started the company, me, Rowanna Ben and Jude Lichnitsky, with two very, very simple rules that we firstly would only work with people that we liked and we would only work on projects that we were passionate about. And that, I think, was partly in response to being in an industry in which an awful lot of the time you work with people who are just desperate to cover overhead or you might get sucked up into a multinational company and they're really, really worried about the interest on their loans and an awful lot of the love and passion that producers like to feel for a project gets beaten out of you. So when we started Drama Republic, and the name also, I wanted it to kind of speak volumes that we would be a group of like-minded people who all shared the same passion for drama, it was really to do just that, that we would work with people that we loved on projects that we were passionate about, and we would try never to chase business for the sake of business. And actually, we've been able to do that. And it was very important to us that the relationship that we have with our key talent, of which Hugo is central, is a good one. That we would be a place that supported vision and they would be able to do their best work. And so we work repeatedly with quite a few people. By that I mean not very many. And uh, so it's a testament, I think, to our relationship and hopefully the culture of our company that Hugo feels that he can 
come back for more. And so we look for we look forward to the quartet of his oeuvre on um, our under our banner sometime soon. Why did it make sense to become part of, of Media One and, and Leonine last year? Well, interestingly, when we went out to market and we went to, I guess, we spoke to about 10, 12 companies, uh, and you're looking for a variety of things. And Media One was really the only company that seemed to be more interested in our content than our balance sheet, than our EBITDA. And there was a real meeting of minds and a joint aspiration to be part of a company where IP and top high-end quality IP was at its heart. There was also a sort of a slightly sort of emotional nostalgic element of we'd just been uh, Brexit had happened, the referendum was happened, and we just thought we'd quite want to lean into Europe. Uh, and I mean, so far so good. You mentioned stalking Hugo earlier on. The last time he was here, I believe, and, and my colleague uh, Michael Picard was interviewing you. You had to run off because a a Batman stalker appeared suddenly. Apparently, is that still a problem for you? It's not a problem, Jonathan. It's, it's a joy to always sign endless photographs of myself from 33 years ago. One yesterday turned up, and it was just an unusual angle. And I went, oh, look, me with my gun up, which is very unheard of. Normally, it's straight in, pointing straight down the lens. And yes, no, it's, um, there's a certain type, a certain type, of which I would always like to uh, <laughs> participate with. It's a long time ago. I was with the producer uh, a little while back of Blackadder. I was happened to act in Blackadder as well. And um, uh, I, I'm not sure what inspired him to say, well, Hugo, whatever happens, you'll always be remembered for Blackadder. And I said to the producer, oh, no, sir, whatever happens, I'll always be remembered for shooting Batman's parents. <laughs> Banerjee's $2.2 billion acquisition of Endemol Shine in the summer of 2020 saw the former's founder and chairman, Stefan Corby, finally get his hands on a long-coveted prize, bringing together brands like Big Brother, MasterChef and Survivor under one banner and creating the biggest production and distribution group in the world. Following the pandemic, the company has finally come together for its first major market at MIPCOM in Cannes this week, with Chief Executive Marco Bassetti delivering one of the keynotes. But the company is by no means the only French headquartered player shaking up the international TV business. Federation Studios, founded by ex-marathon entertainment chief Pascal Breton and former MCS exec Lionel Ouzan, came out of the gate in 2014 with Marseille, Netflix's first French original, and has expanded rapidly ever since, buying up majority stakes in compatriots Robin & Co and Bompinoche, and most recently Vertigo Films in the UK, with backing from Sebastian Rebao-led financier Anton and private equity firm Montefiore. Meanwhile, TFN O'Neuen also benefits from Anton and, led by managing director Roman Bessie, has been in expansive mood too, taking over businesses including Canada's Real One, Denmark's Nimbus Films, Pupkin and Tuvalu in the Netherlands and establishing Ringside Studios in the UK. A Satcher Media Group, meanwhile, is a pan-European outfit co-founded by former Zodiac Media and Endemol Shine execs Gaspard de Chavignac, Marina Williams and Marc-Antoine Dallowin. 
With backing from Oak Tree Capital Management, Asatcha has acquired Italy's Pico Media and Stand By Me, Minty Studio and Cabo Family in France, plus Wag Entertainment and Red Planet Pictures in the UK, and most recently, following a $50 million raise from French asset management specialist Tickerhow Capital earlier this year, Paris-based Srab Films. Representatives from Federation Nguyen and Asatcha spoke to me here in Cannes about the reasons behind the increasing influence of French companies on the international TV business, their ambitions for growing further and the challenges facing the European market. Here's Federation Studios co-founder and chief executive Pascal Breton. Pascal, welcome back to, uh, to MIPCOM. I know you were here at MIPTV in April and MIPCOM last year, which was a slightly smaller affair than this year, but uh, I haven't seen you since, uh, since back in 2019. So, um, yeah, it's great to be back. And, and how are you feeling about things in uh, MIPCOM 2022? I, I am really surprised and very happy that this market really is <laughs> becoming again a very, very strong market, uh, like it was uh, three, four years ago, maybe even bigger because there will be a crisis, we all know, <laughs> because of the crisis, there will be less uh, production, less originals, and more, more sales. We are, we are used to that, we know that. So I think there are a lot of opportunities in terms of sales. You're talking about a crisis, uh, an expected kind of recession across the European market. Uh, we, yes, we are, we are facing the, the, the recession, which of course will... Uh, uh, give less uh, opportunities for the free TVs to, to invest, but also we are facing the, f the change of model, of business model of most of the streamers. They, they, they started like crazy. They all know that they are in a very good market, but in a very competitive market and they went too crazy. I mean, they, it was too, most of the shows were too expensive. Uh, they did some shows that were very edgy, very good, but in the end, not in a, not really for their for most of their audience. So now they, they most of them, even the ones who have a, a lot of money, like Disney, uh, they dis, they decided to to I would say to to slow down a little so that they can really focus on the shows they really need and. Uh, I'm uh, not talking of uh, HBO, of course, which is uh, m much m much slower. But all the others, they, they have a lot of money. Apple has a lot of money. Amazon has a lot of money. They want to invest, but they don't want to invest uh, too, too many, in too many shows and in too, ma too much budget. You didn't mention Netflix there, but you've made a virtue of working with them very early on. Um, obviously, they're having a, a sort of an inflection moment as well with the switch to to AVOD, you know, and how is that kind of, you know, impacting your business, as it were? Uh, I was in LA last week, and uh, I think the impact is stronger in LA than in, than in Europe. Uh, in Europe, we don't feel uh, so much uh, the, the slowdown of Netflix. I think Netflix needs a lot of series from France, from Italy, from Spain, from Germany, and definitely from UK. Plus, they are less expensive. Plus, there are some obligations and rules. Uh, so, I don't feel that in Europe. Uh, I feel, of course, I produce uh, more than ten series a year for for Netflix or or co-produce or distribute. But um, I would say that uh, they are not really slowing down. They are maybe targeting a little more 
uh, to wider audience and uh, and get, and they want bigger shows. Uh, what I feel, I have I have a, a huge show in, in Germany, in Italy, uh, produced by Fabula, which is uh, the biggest show they ever did in, in Italy. Same in France. So they want bigger shows that can make it global. And how are you sort of dealing with the increasing costs of production? Because, you know, the, obviously the competition among the streamers has, has driven prices higher in terms of talent, in terms of the scales of production that, that they're keen to have to make them all stand out from one another. We've had COVID, which has put a further premium on producing, and, and now we have a, an energy crisis in, in Europe, which has been triggered by the, the Ukraine war and all of the terrible consequences of of that so how are you dealing with those rising costs and how are you kind of you know formulating your business to cope with those well during covid we managed to keep the the, the, the growth of the of the cost at at a, at a good level there was there was there were extra costs but not crazy extra extra costs like the big american shows that well First, they didn't shoot, and when they did shoot, they would spend 20 percent on the budget on COVID. Not in Europe and not in France, because we had great insurances, we had a great plan from the government, so we didn't really have a risk in the shooting. I shot more series in the last three years than than I ever did before, so it, it was a little more tricky, of course. But sometimes we had to to stop for one day or for two days, but we we really made it. So. Uh, I wouldn't say COVID is a, is a strong extra cost in Europe, uh, maybe in UK sometimes. Uh, on, on the new crisis, which is energy and all that, we don't really feel it yet. But obviously, in 23, when we shoot, there will be an extra cost of uh, two to three to four per person, depending on, uh, on uh, sometimes more on the uh, transport, for instance, there will be more, uh, more extra cost. Uh, that's a problem. That could become a problem. It's not yet. But uh, I think on the other hand that uh, the, the fees of the, of the best talents went to uh, a sailing, I would say. I think it's, it's going to decrease a little because the platforms, when they started, when they entered the, the markets everywhere, they paid, they overpaid to get the best talents. And now they, they know they, get, they can get them, and now they want to reduce the prices. So I think for the actors and for the best showrunners and directors, it, went, it was a crazy world. Now we are going back to a real world, and the real world means probably a little less fees for these huge talents. Of course, they are very good, so they need a lot of, 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 of money. But uh, I would say this will decrease a little in the next two or three years because uh, uh, what the channels and the, ta and the platforms are asking for uh, is slower and, uh, and, and because you know the demand is slower and because the demand is slower then th we can lower the prices. So I think it will be uh, a balance between more spending in some, uh, in some transport and uh, many things like that but on the other hand I think we will, we will have lower fees on the other uh, yes, uh, the, the top part of the budget, I would say. And in terms of sort of structuring your business for, for growth or the opposite, a, a, an expected contraction, I mean, but as a business, you've been expanding significantly. You raised 
60 million last year from uh, Montefiore and um, recently I think the, the most high profile acquisition you've made was Vertigo Films in the UK. So what, what's, the, uh, what's the plan there? Uh, we, we still want to expand. Uh, we, are, we have more than 20 production companies all over Europe and in the US. Uh, we, expand, we created recently a company in Africa, one in South America. Uh, we, want to ex- we want to buy other companies or develop new companies in UK, for instance. We are in talks with uh, one very interesting one. Uh, in Netherlands, uh, in many countries, we are, we are in talks. Uh, of course, we will be a little more cautious because of uh, the interest rates and all that, and the banks as well. But uh, because we are delivering more than 30 shows every year, and six or seven movies on top of the series. I think we are strong enough, and because we are a very profitable company now, we are strong enough to borrow more money in the banks. But uh, we will be a little more cautious probably because of the, the financial uh, reality, which is money is more expensive. Just tell us a bit more about the Vertigo acquisition. What was it that appealed about that business? We, they, Vertigo is our great friends for more than 20 years and uh, they, they started really as a great, uh, un, I would say, uh, uh, movie company that was different uh, and they did great movies um, and uh, when they, they saw the, the shift of the, of the market into series, they really were one of the first that really made it easily. Uh, or not easily, but it's never easy. But they made it. They made it. They did Britannia, which was a tough one, but they, they managed to, to to achieve it. And and Bulletproof and many others. And uh, and they are great guys. And uh, we were very happy. We knew. I mean, we talked with them when I started Federation. We talked. We had talks with them, and we knew we wanted to work with them. But we went waited for the good opportunity, and it was now they needed a real shareholder that would invest in the company. And that's what we are doing now, and we are very happy because they have a fantastic slate. It's very interesting because, as you say, they made the flip from, from feature films to, to TV. But I'm just wondering if there's a sort of sense within the industry that there's a bit of a, you know, a flip back in the other direction in, in some ways. Limited series seem to be becoming more and more popular, perhaps because platforms can't make those multi-season commitments and, and, and perhaps because audiences have so much choice you know that those shorter run pieces kind of work a little bit better I don't know are we sort of heading in a, in a you know back the other way again how do you see this no I don't see that uh, platforms were obsessed by new shows and they wanted always new new stories and they wanted limited series uh, but they realized that when you have a great show and when it's successful it's ridiculous not to, not to do new series. Uh, and plus, more and more, they are looking for long-running series. Uh, so I think it will, it will be the other direction, not only. But, but I think part of the shows that platforms will look for will be long-running series that could last for years and years to, to really have, uh, create a fidelity with, uh, with the audience. Uh, like like we did in the in the old times with the free TVs. Uh, At the same time, they are definitely looking for movies because it's faster, because it it brings bigger talents sometimes, or talents that don't want to do 
a series, uh, and uh, also because they can they can reach topics or and talents that wouldn't be open to a series. You know, I mean, some topics are are not for a series, but they can definitely be for a movie. So, like Marilyn Marilyn Monroe, for instance, is a good example of that. Uh, so I think uh, there will be more movies in the future than there are now because they, did, they just started to invest in movies in Europe. They did a lot in US, but not in Europe. So I think there will be more movies in Europe. Uh, and we are doing quite a lot. We are doing seven next year Spa Spanish, French, Italian movies, uh, plus some American movies with Patrick Wexberger, who just won the, the, the Oscar with Coda. Uh, and uh, at the same time, I'm not sure they will need so many limited series, because limited, limited series, you invest a lot of time and money, and when the success is there, it's, it's finished. And it's too much work, too much money, for less profit, I would say, in terms of audience. So I think it will be the other direction, but I think there will be more movies as well. You mentioned uh, going to the markets, accessing more money as part of you know continued expansion. Um, I suppose a lot of people look at the French market. They look at Federation, they look at Banerjee, obviously. They look at Nguyen, Media One. Um, the list goes on. Why is so much French investment going into the television business? Well, we, yes, we are very lucky that France is so so strong in building real studios, international studios. Uh, part of it is because of the regulations, because we we managed, and I, I I was very much involved in that, to have a great regulation for platforms, but also for traditional broadcasters. And it, and it helped a lot, if, including the channels themselves, uh, like TF1 for, with New N, Canal Plus with Studio Canal. It helped all of us to, to, to understand that the value of a show is not just uh, the margin. Uh, and the real value of the show is the IP and the distribution and uh, the remake and all that. Uh, so we are very lucky. Uh, in the future, uh, I think uh, that there will be mainly British big studios in Europe uh, who are investing a lot, like ITV, Fremantle, uh, and some French, very few French. Uh, Banijé is ex an extraordinary uh, success story in terms of non-scripted, I would say. Uh, Media One is a mix. Uh, Federation is just scripted. But these are, yes, these are very, very strong uh, success stories and, uh, and I'm really happy that we are more than one uh, to, to, to do that. And, uh, and uh, I think it's part of the future. There will be the American market, which is extremely strong, but mainly focused on the, on the studios uh, and platforms. And the European market, which is more focused on independent studios and uh, I think it's part of the future. What about MCs and TFN? Um, the fact that that was going to happen and then didn't happen, it must have created a lot of disruption and uncertainty for everybody in the French market and I wonder if you have a view on whether it should have gone through or not. It, it was really uh, difficult for the people inside TF1 and M6. Uh, it was not that difficult for us 
because we are doing business as usual with all, with all of them and they, are, they need more, they need more drama. Uh, and they are investing a lot, especially TF1. Uh, on the future, of course, uh, I personally, I was, I was happy to have a stronger player in France because I think we need a very strong new French platform uh, in front of Canal+, Plus, which is a very strong French platform. And I think two platforms would have been better than one. And I think they, they have to do it anyway, but it's more difficult if they are alone. Uh, so um, personally, I think they will do it together <laughs> anyway. I think you can, they can still do a platform together. They, there is still the issue of the of the advertising market, which is more difficult uh, for regulation reasons. Uh, but apart from that, I think they will they will have to cooperate, and I'm happy that they will cooperate. Interesting. And so you know, you haven't talked about any of your own shows actually that you're that you're here to uh, to represent. Um, you've got a great drama series um, about Bridget Bardot. Yeah. Um, that, that's the one that's, that's kind of headlining. Do you want to tell us about about that and some of the other ones that you're showcasing? Yeah, well, Bridget Bardot is my, of course, my passion project. I shot a series in Saint-Tropez for 15 years I did, and I did 500 episodes <laughs> called Saint-Tropez and I always wanted to do a show on Brigitte Bardot and I always, in my show, I always tried to find a new Brigitte Bardot and I didn't. And two years ago I managed to find this woman, extraordinary woman that really is, looks like Brigitte Bardot and I had a great script from uh, Daniel Thompson who was a friend of Brigitte Bardot uh, and I had the trust of everybody on that show, even Brigitte Bardot and in the end I managed to do it with France Television and Mediaset and Netflix uh, and I think it's yes I think it's a very very interesting great show that we will uh, show this tonight uh, in Grand Albion and uh, and uh, apart from that in Federation we have about 15 new shows uh, on distribution uh, some great Israeli shows some great Scandinavian shows uh, and uh, and uh, and we have also, for instance, we have a show that is number one in France, uh, which is just a procedural, but it's, it's shot in the, the Caribbean, and it's, it's the best audience in France. Yeah, it was aired three days ago, and it was another huge success, and we have, uh, uh, now we have three seasons, and we are shooting the fourth. And, uh, and this show, uh, which is called Deadly Tropics, uh, we are selling everywhere because it's cool, because it's easy listening, you know, it's a, it's a bit the old time of television, but people are also nostalgic of easy shows like just a procedural under the sun. And that's exactly where we are today. Absolutely. I'll let you continue and uh, maybe get out and enjoy some of that. Thank you very much, Pascal. Here's Rudolf Bouet. Chief Executive of New and Distribution Business, New and Connect. So my name is Rudolf Bue and I'm the CEO of New and Connect, the distribution arm of New and Studio. Tell us, what's the story at New and Connect right now? Well, the story of New and Connect is, uh, so we are celebrating our twice or second anniversary. So we created the company in, uh, so two years ago, which was the merge of TF1 Studio on one end and uh, New and Distribution. And, uh, 
And so we are very proud to, 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 to after two years, to, to have built such a success story with, uh, with uh, a company which two years ago had uh, two new shows on the slate. Uh, we brought this year 17 shows, four returning series. We brought uh, 17 uh, factual, uh, five new formats, three animation shows. So the company has now a footprint which is uh, significant. We are partnering with all the in-house production company of uh, New End Studio and on top uh, with key partners throughout Europe. The company is, uh, so the, the slates we brought here to, to, to MIPCOM is uh, covering uh, Denmark, Sweden, uh, England, France, Germany, Spain, Italy. So, so we are we are covering uh, Europe, and and we really feel that we are now identified as a, one of the key partners to bring uh, the best of uh, European producers, European talent, uh, and uh, and European production. We're here at MIPCOM. We're here in France. Um, there's no escaping the fact that. Uh, French media companies are the ones that are having the biggest impact, it seems, in, in Europe. We've got Banerjee, obviously, and, and uh, yourselves, there's Media One, there's Federation, you know, an incredible amount of investment is, is coming from uh, predominantly French-owned companies and, and uh, you know, filtering into the international TV business. Oh, you're, you're correct saying that, but uh, I would say that the business model of uh, some of the production companies you've been naming are totally different from, from the other ones. So I would say you have on one end uh, Vanijay, so it's French, but it's uh, the, the biggest um, production and distribution company in the world, and, uh, and, and they, they managed to build up this company thanks to great talent. Um, I would say New N uh, Studio and New N Connect are probably operating in a different way. Um, we we don't want uh, like uh, Banish the Zodiac to operate at worldwide level. So we feel that uh, the, the the strength of the company is being a, a, a solid European uh, producer. Um, we feel that uh, going to the US or Korea will make no sense. We can we want the audience in Korea and the US uh, discovering the the project and the production uh, we are bringing to market but uh, so uh, we, we feel that uh, being anchored locally it's, uh, it's key and uh, partnering with the best producers is important and uh, the, the main difference between the company you name and, uh, and uh, New End Studio is uh, we, we, have, we, we, we are not driven by, uh, by, by phones by uh, equity company we, had, uh, we, 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 have, uh, we are 100% owned by TF1 groups own 100% by Buig, uh, a 70 billion, 80 billion construction company uh, involved in telco. And so they, they have a very long-term vision, long-term uh, strategy uh, with uh, New End Studio and New End Connect, and they want to build um, part of the heritage of, uh, of uh, the films and uh, television um, business uh, for, for, for the next 20, 40, 50 years. So, so I think it's it's a it's a key difference. So and now why is there so many French company uh, uh, involved in that market? It's probably because we are we have a, a very supportive business model in France with uh, with uh, the French cultural exception. We are we we have uh, we have the CNC supporting and and we manage to because of the French heritage, the French uh, cinema culture, we managed to develop incredible talent. Uh, in writing, in uh, in filming, in editing, so uh, which uh, 
which bring some some of the production at the level of uh, the big competitors, which are the the American uh, the American companies. So I think the combination of uh, a supportive uh, a supportive organization uh, like CNC and the French uh, the French Cultural Minister, um, the fact that we uh, we we build over the last decades uh, fantastic writers talent. Uh, we have uh, we have great schools uh, developing those talent in France, like La Femis, Louis Lumiere, uh, um, and so those talents with uh, with good executive uh, managed to bring to the world a great show. It's not your part of the business as such investing in production companies, but but Newman has been obviously buying a lot of companies. It's all about the ownership of IP, and uh, that IP obviously benefits. New and Connect as well. So you know what? What can you say about uh, you know what the company's been doing over the past few years and uh, how that uh, comes through to New and Connect? So in fact, what so the the purpose of uh, developing and growing the company uh, in Europe and acquiring companies. So and, and Romain Bessy, the chairman of the company, will be much better to talk about it uh, than me. But the purpose was uh, really to bring talent to work together. So we we feel that uh, um, so. When TF1, when TF1 bought Nguyen, it was mainly a French company, uh, very dependent to France Television, and, uh, and so the business model was fragile. Right now, with 50 production companies throughout Europe, working with all, uh, all the players, so all the streamers, so we, we are working for Netflix, Amazon, Apple+, Plus, uh, Disney+, Plus. we are working for Rai, for TF1, for France Television, for ZDF, Pro Even Satine. So we, we managed to secure our business throughout uh, all the existing players and, and, and try to every day better understand uh, what's going on and uh, who will be in the future the, the, the next Netflix, the next Amazon, the next uh, TF1. So it's point one. Point two, uh, we feel that uh, bringing together talent from Sweden, Norway, Spain, Italy uh, and France give us a chance to make people connect uh, make people uh, talk together, develop a concept, and, and create real organic co-production. And so, good example is uh, the show we've been producing with uh, with Apple Plus, Ringside Studio in the UK, and uh, Leonis in France, Liaison. Um, so it's uh, we, without uh, without uh, the so the implementation of uh, of new ends throughout Europe, this show was not possible to be produced. Uh, uh, Within a single uh, local company, uh, and 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 three, uh, what is making sense? Uh, it's uh, making sure that we we, we make the, the the local IP circulating throughout uh, throughout the production company, and it's creating value. It's uh, spinning up the process, uh, delivering new concepts and ideas for local broadcasters, local streamers, local, uh, um, and we feel that. Um, story which are making sense in Italy uh, can make sense in France, story which are making sense. And a very good example of that is uh, our Spanish company developed a product named Planta Trece, and so uh, we, were, we were countering to develop it out of Spain. Uh, the, we have regular meeting with TF1, they came to TF1, pitched the product to the head of international co-production at TF1, and the head of commissioning at TF1 heard about the product and thought, wow, it's a fantastic concept. At the end, the product will be a French-Spanish co-production, but so uh, led by uh, a French uh, production company named Kappa, 
And so Kappa and I then are partnering to deliver a French original, which will then travel throughout the, the world. But uh, the fact that we are able to cross-fertilize all the production company and, uh, and, uh, and try to identify products which are making sense is, uh, is a key asset for new studio. All these concepts, all these ideas are a fantastic, uh, a fantastic asset for new and connect. So my, my role is making sure that the dream of our producers uh, will become true uh, throughout uh, um, new model. Uh, well, we, we need every day to think about the new model to finance the show, uh, think about different windowing process, windowing ideas, uh, um, and, uh, and having the chance to represent so many content uh, give us the opportunity to experiment, experience, and, uh, and make sure that uh, those stories will be uh, on screen for, for a massive audience. It's great to be back in Cannes, obviously, as a, as a distributor, it's wonderful to have so many uh, you know, clients on your, your stand where we are now. Um, there's no escaping the fact, however, that you know, whilst the sun's shining uh, outside, the uh, you know the, the sort of global economic outlook is 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 looking pretty grim right now. You know, how does that sort of instability affect you from a sort of a distribution point of view? And you know, how, how do you sort of see things playing out for the industry in the coming 12 months? Well, so it's, it's true that the situation is uh, it's complex. We are sometimes struggling. Uh, uh, to sell uh, high concept to, to 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 the broadcasters or the streamers because the, the production uh, budget are growing up and uh, but at the end of the day so the the main challenge we have to face right now is accessing talent uh, because they are they are more and more show being produced so it's uh, difficult to get access to the to the good writers to the gators to the good author to the to crew to talent and so which which is probably the main challenge for us right now. Rather than uh, facing an economical situation, we, we are still growing uh, because of, uh, well, after the boom of uh, the SVOD market, we, are, we have now new players uh, joining, the, joining the, the, the industry. So Pluto TV, Roku, which are contribu contributing uh, significantly to the model already in the US or in, uh, in Asia and which are starting to operate in. So we are much more in a, in a, in a positive mood than negative. Um, and I, I would say in terms of creative process, the, the fact that the, so nothing is for sure right now is probably for, for the talent, the writers. Uh, uh, so the, so it's, it's bringing more creativity than ever. So, uh, so it's, it's, it's probably, it's, it's difficult to, to, to say that uh, the current situation is generating growth uh, for us uh, on a short-term basis and mid-term basis. So I can't, so I, I can't predict what will, uh, what will be the situation three years from, for, from now. But the market has never been so active. Uh, we, we've been introducing a lot of shows. Uh, the, the, the linear channel and streamers are reacting extremely well. And we, re we really feel that there is an appetite for a good, good program, good content. Last thing, the fact that the studios are uh, much more integrated is an opportunity for uh, independent company like Nguyen, um, because uh, our partners at RTL, ProDib and Rai which were uh, getting content from Warner or uh, NBCU or Disney uh, are now looking for, uh, for, 
other source of uh, deliveries and, and, and UN Connect is, uh, is at the right position to deliver great content. Here's a Satcha Media Group co-founder and co-chief executive Marina Williams. So Marina Williams, co-founder and co-CEO of Asasha Media Group. Asasha Media Group has been founded by three founders, Marc Antoine de Luin, Gaspar de Chavignac and myself, um, with a partnership with Oaktree. And Gaspar and me were co-CEOs of the business. The company's been around since 2020. You set up in the uh, just as the pandemic was sweeping across the world, but um, it's been a, a rapid period of growth for you over the past couple of years. Just bring us up to speed with where the business is at now. It's incredible growth for us, and uh, I think we can be proud of these two years, uh, which we just celebrated. We now have seven companies, um, and we really selected them with, um, I would say, a very interesting approach. So all these companies has very good visibility on the business. So many um, important franchises, a long running series. So we are in Italy, in United Kingdom and in France. Uh, we recently, just before the market closed, actually acquisition of a film company, which is uh, new to us, but we can see that there is demand from streamers in the film as well. So we are a diverse company, predominantly fiction, scripted, TV series, so factual, and now films. And just tell us about that latest acquisition. So that was just closed in August. That's correct. Uh, so it's a very, very interesting company in, uh, uh, based out of Paris with diverse content, um, which was very important for us because they bring a new perspective um, into the very social, different social layers of uh, French market, but also international subjects. And we were really lucky, just as we closed the deal, their movie, Saint-Omer, was nominated for uh, Lion Prize in Venice and now nominated for Oscars on behalf of France for non-English category. And um, that acquisition, presumably, was, was um, part-fueled by the fact that you raised about $50 million, I think it was, from uh, French asset management specialist uh, Tikahau Capital. Um, that was at the start of the year, and, and that's really kind of supercharged things, I guess, for 2022 and beyond. Yes, and we, we, we continue to have support from Oak Tree Capital, which is our majority partner. So it's a combination of equity and debt investment into the expanded of the business. What's the roadmap from here? We're still, we're still growing, so we are truly pan-European studio. That's how we see ourselves. So we are looking very uh, seriously into German market, um, considering Spain, and we feel we are not done yet in UK. So these are our priorities, uh, both in fiction and in factual space. It's very interesting, given the number of uh, French headquartered companies that are making such big investments in the international television business. Obviously, uh, Banerjee, we've got Newman Studios, Media One, um, that's just to name a few. Uh, why is there so much interest from France in the international TV business? Well, we, we really consider ourselves uh, pan-European. Uh, the headquarters is in France, but uh, three of us, the founders, come from very international background, and we complement each other on the network of uh, clients and knowledge of the markets all around Europe. So I think it's more why pan-European, which, which we think is definitely important because their theme of the market here and overall the trend is co-production, co-financing, 
and many parties and broadcasters coming together uh, to finance a series. So we feel that the leverage of pan-European group is very important for the future of the business rather than just being a standalone French or UK uh, or German company, let's say. Europe is not the most stable of territories at the moment, however. So um, I'm just wondering how the, um, you know, all the financial uncertainty in the markets, obviously the impact um, of the war in Ukraine and uh, general uncertainty is kind of impacting your strategy in any way and, you know, how you think that's going to play out in 2023. We, we see that production market and content creation market have been surprisingly resilient. Uh, we obviously have to watch very carefully the macroeconomic environment. Uh, but so far there is no slowing down of our commissions. I guess our privilege is that 60% of our business is returnable, uh, serious. And we don't just work as suppliers, we work as partners with some of our key clients. Uh, so that's important, but we we have to watch their development, and um, we're a very agile company, so we'll be adjusting with this, with the times and with the trends. But does the um, instability of the financial markets is is that kind of having a bearing on things as well, and in terms of your plans for investment? Not 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 at the moment. So it would be actually interesting for us to see how it would impact the evaluation of the companies going forward. You know, we were, in fact, during COVID year, which was also a time of uncertainty, we made huge progress. That was our launch year, and we closed three very important deals, uh, which are delivering today. From what we can see, all the companies are quite successful. So sometimes in the midst of the crisis, there is opportunity. So we have to keep our eyes open. And UK companies are presumably quite cheap now as well. We haven't seen yet um, them being cheap, to be honest. I'd love to see that happening. <laughs> In terms of the exchange rate, though, it's kind of, I don't know, it, 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 I guess it's making particularly US companies kind of, you know, take a fresh look at the UK, perhaps. Yeah, that's, that's true. From that perspective, yes. But we also have to see what happens, actually, with the inflation in the UK market uh, in terms of, you know, the cost of uh, talent, etc. And, um, yes, Euro, Euro actually helps at the moment. So that's, uh, that's why we want to look at UK even more seriously. And what about what's been happening in France over the past year, particularly with the on-off merger of MCs and, and TFN, you know, how much um, disruption has that created? And, you know, I wonder if you have a view on whether you think that would have been a good thing for it to proceed. For the industry, it was probably a good thing because definitely free-to-air business have to defend itself, you know, against their erosion of the audience towards the streamers. Um, as far as we are concerned, we are a major provider of content for M6, so they are our partners. And uh, from that point of view, we are, we are happy that there is stability there now, and at least decision was taken, so there is no uncertainty. This allows the management of M6 to continue with their content strategy and creates stability factor for us as a key supplier of content for them. And how have you found MIPCOM 2022? Uh, it's obviously coming back uh, in a bigger way than it has been last year and, and at MIP TV as well in April. How, what's your sort of sense of the market and, you know, the appetite among buyers and, and producers as well? 
You know, there are not so many streamers here present with booths, you know, or stands. So there are lots of meetings going on. And I think that there is still uncertainty in the trends of the market because we have to see how the advertising models are going to work uh, for the streamers, which will probably impact also their, um, their commissioning strategy. Um, I think it will be more probably local with some of the you know global uh, commissions, of course, and pan-European commissions. But we we are well positioned uh, to serve them in our local markets where we are, and I think that trend will continue. We would love to see more opportunity to retain more rights in the territories where we are. So I don't think there is certainty yet here in the market for the last two days as to you know how this will evolve. It's too early to say. And what about genre-wise? Obviously, there's been a sort of a, a boom in, in scripted. That's been followed by a boom in natural history programming, for example. And uh, again, largely driven by the, the streamers. But, um, you know, what do you see in terms of programming trends in the market? I think that uh, you have to be diverse. And whether it's an SWOT platform, from what I can see, or free-to-air broadcasters, they are looking, obviously, for premium, but also long-running uh, shows. And I think that in terms of your previous question about the macroeconomic environment, possibly there will be more demand, you know, for lower, lower-cost products, not only premium scripted, because that's not sustainable. So I think factual is definitely in demand. And from what I can see, big reality and non-scripted shows are coming back on air in a lot of countries as well. And looking around you here and, and seeing your former employer, Banerjee, with a massive uh, stand at the front of the Palais and uh, Marco Bassetti speaking, I, I, I think probably as we're talking as well on, on stage, delivering his keynote, you know, um, you've seen this market change significantly from that point of view as well. How, how do you look at, for example, Banerjee now as an outsider? I know you can't say too much probably about your former employer, but, um, you know, they've got a massive presence here and they've had a massive impact and, uh, you know, it, it, it's a big message that they're sending out to the business. I could say it's a very big company. Um, this is not something that at this point in our lives we as three founders would, would want to do. We think that it's great to have huge business, but at the same time you can succeed with the right group of producers and selecting them with the right talent and also uh, synergy. So we we all we still fit in in the Zoom screen. I don't think <laughs> Banijay would, but I'm very proud of what they've done. You know, that's the amazing company with amazing formats. Good, good to see what kind of new formats will come in. I, I can see that all the ones that I used to work on, Star Academy, Big Brother, they're coming back again. Uh, which is fantastic news, obviously, for Banijai. It would be great to see what are the new hits. And uh, if we were to meet up at this time next year, you know, what would you want a Satcha Media Group to be looking like at that point? Well, next year may be too ambitious, but in two years we'd like to double in size and we would like to be in uh, more markets, which I mentioned to you and also uh, strengthen our central content team with more synergies between our companies. So we have a lot of content in works, 80, probably over 80 projects now, which is for our you know, beginning company is, is quite impressive and quite a few of them are already in co-production between both in-house companies and third parties. You referenced the fact that you're primarily European, but um, in that 
roadmap towards expansion? Are you looking to the U.S. and elsewhere? We are servicing U.S. and we will continue to service U.S. on the factual side because U.K. product is really very much in demand in U.S. where we don't have plans to set up production businesses in U.S. at the moment. So we will stay European. And finally, what's your kind of key takeaway, I suppose, uh, from, from MIPCOM 2022 so far? You know, what, what's the message that you've taken away from the market? Be resilient. Be creative deliver the best product and you will always find the buyer. MIPCOM 2022 wrapped on Thursday after the event returned in full force for the first time since the pandemic. Channel 21 International Editor Nico Franks, C21 Kids Editor Carolina Kaminska, North American Editor Jordan Pinto and C. Vanteuno Co-Editor Gonzalo Larea spoke to me about the biggest stories and themes shaping this year's market, including the potential sale of ITV Studios, continued M&A activity from Banerjee, BBC Studios and Fremantle, Netflix's move into ad-supported streaming, the arrival of Fox Entertainment Global and the growing influence of gaming. Hello everybody, thank you for joining me and uh, well done for making it through the week. How's it been for everybody? Yeah, it's been a while since uh, I've done a five, six day market. So yeah, it was uh, all about kind of getting back up to speed and it has been, yeah, great as a journalist just being back, seeing people, seeing people who have changed jobs and it maybe hasn't been announced yet, things like that. Actually, the kind of the fun part of the job really is, you know, meeting people, getting feature ideas. And yeah, it feels like everyone's just really enjoyed being back at MIPCOM. Obviously, it did happen last year and it was a much calmer affair. This year, it really felt, yeah, like it was back to business. Like you say, you've done the full sort of five days, including MIP Junior over the weekend. Uh, Carolina, you were there as well, so um, no doubt you're feeling a little bit uh, little bit worn out by now, but uh, how's the week been? A little bit worn out, yeah. So I got here on Friday. It's been quite a long week, but at the same time, it's gone very quickly because as MIP is, it's a very busy affair, so um, haven't really stopped. Um, but yes, it's, I've enjoyed it. I think everybody here, the atmosphere has been really good. Everyone's been really excited to be back. There's definitely been a buzz. Um, and yeah, Whip Junior obviously um, was on over the weekend. Um, lots of people there, good turnout. Uh, everyone, yeah, seemed really, really happy to be there. And it was the first in-person standalone MIP Junior since 2019 and also the 30th edition. So happy 30th birthday MIP Junior. And a happy 25th birthday to C21 Media, I should say, as well. Then it was our birthday party last night. So uh, forgive us if we, uh, you know, stray a little bit from some of the things that we're going to be talking about. But um, it's been a good one and the first one for you. It's a, a, a baptism for you, Jordan. So, um, yeah, how's it been for you, your first time at MIP? Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Um, I think it, it, it makes it kind of contextualizes the industry somewhat when you get to see MIPCOM and you kind of see the scale of everything. And um, so I don't necessarily have much to, to compare it to in terms of MIPS, but um, I know I'm sure we've all heard that everyone is thrilled to be back. I think the the volume of, of grumbling from uh, producers is, is kind of much less than I uh, you know you might typically expect to hear at an event. Um, so yeah, I think everyone's been uh, thrilled to be back and. Um, yeah, I think it's been a really vibrant market. Gonzalo, it's great to have you aboard as well. So welcome to the C21 team. Um, you've been here uh, on a number of occasions before, however, but, um, you know, how's it been as a, as a first time representing C. Vantino? 
Yes, that's right. This was a very exciting MIPCON for me. I think this is my 10th or 12th MIPCON, I don't know. It's been exhausting like the rest of the team, but it was really exciting for me because it's uh, our first big, big market, our first MIPCON with, with 71, you know, the, the Spanish language edition of C21, and the feedback has been great, very positive, and all the, the whole Spanish-speaking community was uh, received us very, very well. And there's been some, uh, well, there's been no shortage of news. I, I can't keep tally of all the stories that we've, we've put out this week, but uh, Monday kicked off with um, some, some big news, uh, which came from outside the market, but obviously had ripple effects across it. The suggestion that ITV might be considering selling part or all of um, its, its production and distribution arm, ITV Studios. Um, Obviously, that's, that's uh, created quite, quite some waves across the business, particularly with the ITV stand not far from here and uh, all the executives milling around and doing their meetings. Absolutely, yeah. So that broke on the Financial Times on Sunday. And yes, it, uh, it's fair to say it took some yeah, people by surprise. I think being a public company, there's always the consideration around you know, the, the future of ITV Studios and that was reflected in the kind of statement that the, the ITV press team gave that, uh, that they're always considering the future but they won't comment on speculation um, and certain companies that were kind of linked or kind of deemed the potential kind of suitor for part or all of ITV Studios like Fremantle, Banerjee, um, yeah, on stage, Fremantle were asked about it. They, they said that the first they'd heard of it was in the press, so that was their CEO, um, Jennifer Mullen. And yeah, I mean, a lot of people I spoke to on the ground here, kind of producers, um, they, their perspective was that it would make sense in a lot of ways, um, and it would, you know, have a positive effect on ITV share price. So. In some ways, yeah, it feels like quite a sensible thing for ITV to do, though not many people actually thought that they will do it. Yeah, I mean, it did have an immediate effect on their share price. It, it, it leapt, and uh, I think, Jordan, you spoke to uh, a number of people in the M&A sector, and they gave you their kind of take on things as well. There's a sort of certain feeling out there that it would make sense. Yes, um, I think people aren't, you know, jump falling over themselves to comment on the record, but but behind the scenes, um, a couple of M&A kind of experts or you know people that are part of doing the, the, some of the big M&A deals, um, they certainly seem to think that it would make a lot of sense to do that, and um, especially at a time when it seems that ITV Studios is the value of that entity is kind of almost outweighing the um, the, the, the just the ITV PLC entity. Um, yeah, it seems to make a lot of sense, and um, you know the brightest minds for this kind of thing seems to seem to agree. And there's certainly no slowdown in M&A activity, and uh, you know there was uh, other deals that were announced on on Monday as well. There was the BBC Studios taking full control of Killing Eve producer Sid Gentle Films, Banerjee acquiring fellow UK drama producer Mam Tour Productions. Um, you know, the, the, the scale of the operations that we're dealing with here in Cannes and across the international TV business. I've spent the week talking to a lot of the, uh, the growing French production businesses which are expanding all around the world. But yeah, I don't know, how's it been on the ground? And when you're talking to smaller producers and, and, and distributors, they must be feeling, you know, a little bit under threat here, right? Yeah, you do get the sense when you talk to the true independents, they do feel a little bit vulnerable, maybe. I think there is 
safety in numbers, but it doesn't, you know, the size of some of these companies now, you know, the, we used to call them super indies. Now they're just, you know, just absolute behemoths. And it must be hard for them when they are coming to a market like this. You know, it's all about new shows, making buyers excited. Um, but if you're a, a production distribution company with, I don't know, over 100 or so producers, ha there's no way you can kind of make each one feel like you're giving their new show enough attention. So I think keeping all those producers happy once you've acquired them must be a, a really hard task. And um, yeah, there was the, the question about whether or not certain elements of these kind of strategies around growth, it's kind of growth for growth's sake and effectively these groups buying revenue. Fremantle uh, were asked about that and they, they denied it. They said, you know, they always think very carefully about the, the companies that they acquire. There has to be a kind of cultural fit for it to work for both. But yeah, you do get the sense that how big is, is too big, basically. Um, Caroline, you covered the Banerjee keynote from Chief Executive Marco Bassetti. He, he talked about scale, and, and they certainly have scale, and then some. So, uh, you know, what else did he have to say? I, I believe he sort of took a little bit of a pop at the, the, the streaming giants as well. He did, yeah. So um, he was presenting the keynote on Tuesday. Um, and he was yeah, urging streaming giants to give producers and talent more rights. Um, he, he argued that IP and talent will be the most important thing to create value in the next five to ten years um, and that it's unfair to ask talent to, um, to give you everything and then give them nothing in return when a show becomes a big hit. Um, and he also said that he thinks producers would do a better job if given the opportunity to invest and um, obtain some of the rights um, so that was that was quite a big a big focus of his talk he also hinted at plans to extend further into the direct-to-consumer space um, which we're obviously seeing a lot of um, big studios doing Avod has clearly been among the uh, the many topics of discussion with uh, Netflix's shift to offering an, an ad supported version of its service as well what have you kind of gleaned from, from those conversations? Um, yeah, there was, well, I think it's, it goes without saying that there's been a lot of talk about, a, about AVOD and FAST at this market. Um, uh, Jim Packer from Lionsgate and Ruth Berry from ITV Studios were on a panel where they were kind of talking about what the implications of Netflix and Disney moving into AVOD would be. Um, Ruth Berry was kind of talking about how she thought there would be a bifurcation of um, of what is, is available on Netflix. So you will have more kind of maybe family-friendly programming on the AVOD side, and then some of the darker, um, con you know, some of the darker kind of scripted fare that we're used to seeing, um, you know, Netflix and other streamers programming, that kind of stuff on the, um, the paid-for side of the equation. And that was something J Jim Packer uh, agreed with as well. And he was, he was kind of, he went as far as to say that he thinks some advertisers will feel kind of uncomfortable perhaps with their, um, with their brands and their advertising being kind of placed um, up, up against some of, this, um, some of this darker content. And he used Orange is the New Black uh, as an example, just because that, that's one of, uh, one of the shows that Lionsgate, Lionsgate owns. But obviously, I think he's talking about in general about um, you know, what all that will look like. Um, and during the market, actually, Netflix just announced their, uh, their subscriber numbers. So I think that they are now back to, to growth. They added 2.4 million um, subscribers after having lost subscribers for the past two quarters. Um, that's obviously great news for them. Um, Netflix, when they were talking about what the introduction of the AVOD tier will mean, so um, that, that um, it's 12 markets the AVOD uh, tier will be launching in starting on November the 1st. Um, 
Netflix seem to have said that in the early going, they don't actually expect that to have a big impact on the number of subscribers. So they don't expect it to uh, drive a tremendous amount of growth initially. Perhaps that will change in the, in the months ahead. But um, yeah, just immediately, that's not what they expect. Um, and they also used their presentation to have a bit of a pop at some of their rivals as well, I believe. They did indeed have a pop at some of their uh, some of their competitors, without mentioning any any of them by name. Um, they said that, uh, or Netflix said, they estimate that their competitors are kind of about ten billion dollars in the hole from their streaming investments so far. Um, I think it, for the for the most part, Netflix has kind of avoided that kind of. Um, you know, making those kind of comments publicly, but this was, you know, something that was in in the shareholder letter. So I feel that, especially as they move on into AVOD now, I feel like maybe the gloves will come off a little bit more in the in this next phase of the uh, streaming wars or whatever we, we are calling them now. And uh, Netflix wasn't the only one to sort of come out with that kind of uh, combative talk. I mean, actually here in in, in Cannes, you've met the executives taking over at Fox Entertainment, Fox Entertainment Global. Uh, the new distribution arm that's that's been launched down here in Cannes as well. Um, you know, what did they have to say? Yeah, th this was a really big market for Fox, um, not least because w when uh, when they were putting the industry programming together, Charlie Collier was still the CEO of Fox Fox Entertainment. Um, it was about a month ago now that it was announced that he was leaving to join Roku, and fairly speedily, uh, Rob Wade um, was promoted to um, CEO of Fox Entertainment. So it was it was really important um, both for, for Rob Wade and Fox Entertainment more, more generally. And Rob was speaking on a panel um, alongside Michael Thorne, who's the president of entertainment, and Fernando Chev, who is the who was the head of Mar Vista, and he will retain that role. But he's also now the head of their new um, kind of global distribution and co-production entity, Fox Global Entertainment. Um, they've basically been on the ground um, talking about how they want to start, or they're kind of relaunching back into the uh, into the international TV marketplace at the moment. It was about three years ago that um, the assets of 20th Century Fox was sold to Disney as part of that um, deal. Um, and that was basically, at the time, that was kind of Fox Entertainment's exit from the international TV business. Um, since then, they've, they've acquired Bento Box, um, Tubi, um, TMZ, Marvista, and I think now they kind of have a critical mass of um, uh, kind of production and distribution assets to actually make, make this a really viable entity. Um, Rob Wade was quite critical of some of the other streaming services, um, basically saying, you know, they're looking to warehouse their content, everything's behind a paywall. Um, as as uh, Fox Entertainment Global goes out and looks for to co-produce in the international market, he said that will not that will not be the strategy, and they you know they really want to kind of partner with like-minded, um, ad-supported um, companies as they um, build out this new slate of projects, which, it, from the sounds of things, will be focused on adult animation um, and some kind of unscripted projects. And Gonzalo, you also had an opportunity to meet with the Fox execs and, and you know, had some, some different conversations with them about uh, their plans for, for Latin America and the Spanish language market. Yes, that, that's correct. I think the, the launch of Fox Entertainment Global was one of the most exciting news of, of the whole market, you know, but especially for Latin America, it was exciting too because Fernando Sheuf, the, the guy that, that runs it, the, the, the CEO, he's from Argentina, he's from Latin America, he's a very well-respected and known figure over there. He used to run Mar Vista, well, he still runs Mar Vista. So Latin America is going to be key to, to Fox Entertainment's global expansion. Uh, I also had the opportunity to talk to, to Rob White about it, and he 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 mm, highlighted that that Latin America was incredibly important for them, and that they were already looking for opportunities 
of producing locally, of building hubs in the region. They were talking in Mexico with broadcasters, in Colombia with broadcasters, and also uh, Mar Vista is already producing over there. They, are, they have like a deal to produce 10 or 12 pictures a year for different streamers. So they are already there and they are planning to, to expand. And Fremantle Chief Executive Jennifer Mullen, uh, Chief Operating Officer Andrea Scrisati as well. Um, we heard that they declined to comment on um, ITV, but uh, they did talk about expansion in Latin America. Yes, you know, regarding Latin America and, and Spain, there wasn't a news so exciting like the one of ITV, you know, but it was exciting to hear Fremantle talk that Latin America and India are key territories they see for expansion and, and what regards to Latin America. So Fremantle already has some um, acquisitions over there. He, he, they, they are working with, with Fabula from Chile. They have a local team in Mexico. They also have a share in The Immigrant, a, a producer from U.S. Hispanic. So I guess it's big news for, for, for the region to know that Fremantle is in the market looking for, for, for new opportunities and for new production companies they could buy. And just picking up again on the, uh, on the Latin American theme, um, I was chatting with Thomas Day from ACF Investment Bank, um, and he was saying, whereas in the past, when you're looking at the M&A space, we've seen um, you know, the, the really high-profile acquisitions are kind of centered on the US and UK markets typically. He said, in, in the, you know, as we look forward, we're going to start seeing that shift, and some of the really um, you know, the big, the big money acquisitions will um, be done in non-English markets, and he kind of cited Latin America as, as one, of the, uh, one of the territories and, uh, and Spain as well, where you might start seeing these kind of really high valuation deals taking place. And away from all the talk of M&A activity, um, in, in terms of the sort of the creative side of the business, obviously, which is, a, which is the whole thing relies upon, but uh, I thought it was interesting that Tim Davey used his uh, speech, the, the Director General of the BBC, um, to actually talk more about writers and um you know to encourage them not to not to limit risks i think was the the message that he put across um carolina what did he have to say you were in that session he did yes so um he he was discussing some of the problems that he sees in the market one of which is he says that there's there's not enough risk being taken and there's there's a danger that the industry is becoming quite um formulaic and 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 kind of following tried and tested formulas so he was urging writers to go out there and try to be a bit more experimental um, rather than, interestingly, he, he said, you know, he, he, he recommended that they don't spend their entire MIP just attending sessions, but going out and, and just trying to, you know, take a moment to, to think of something new and, and, and a bit different. Um, um, he, he, he was also talking about competition in the market and it kind of played down streamer competition a little bit and instead was focusing on um, other forms of entertainment like gaming and the competition that he sees from that and how traditional companies need to be very aware of all of the different um, new types of, of, of entertainment and modern technology and, and the, the threats that they pose. Um, and yes, yeah, so he, he was... Um, he was speaking as part of the keynote, which actually started with um, BBC Studios CEO Tom Fussell um, in his first public speech since since he took the helm. In his speech, he was he was talking about the history of the BBC, uh, which turned 100 this week. So happy birthday, BBC! Um, and also discussing the uh, the studio slate.
Yeah, interesting what you mentioned about gaming there as well. And you mentioned Thomas Day earlier on as well. Jordan, he was at the centre of that deal which saw a games company from Sweden acquire the rights to, to Lord of the Rings. Uh, he very much was, was sort of pushing the message that the TV business should be looking ahead to the next kind of 10 years and, and, and the role that gaming, for example, is going to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the um, statistics that was cited on the panel was that um, you know, the gaming industry is now larger than the pay, pay TV industry, and that's maybe not something we would have seen 10 years ago. Um, Embracer, the, uh, the company that acquired uh, the Lord of the Rings, or the rights to the Lord of the Rings, uh, the head of the company was saying, um, well, he, w- he wouldn't uh, necessarily be drawn on exactly how they plan to exploit the IP, um, but it, uh, tra- transmedia was the, uh, was the word that they were using. And um, there's also there's like a, there's a, a board gaming uh, partner on, on, uh, as part of the team as well, so they're kind of really thinking about it in, the, in a kind of 360 way. Um, Embracer also was, um, was saying that um, they might be uh, looking at other um, potential acquisitions in the, uh, in the television space. I know Thomas, Thomas Day from ACF was on that panel as well, and I know Thomas had a smile on his face when he was saying that he might try and sell the Embracer uh, company more, more television assets. Um, but uh, I think that's definitely a TBD, but it, it's certainly interesting. Just, uh, Embracer have acquired, I think it's more than 100 companies in the last five years, and, so they're, they're, and they're publicly traded, so they, um, they're definitely uh, one to watch potentially as, um, as they look more so at the TV and uh, film space. Jordan Pinto, Nico Franks, Carolina Kaminska and Gonzalo Larea speaking to me at MIPCOM in Cannes. Be sure to visit our website for all our coverage from this year's market. There'll be plenty more interviews coming too on our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.